Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, conversations on faith and culture. I'm your host, Sean McDowell, professor of apologetics at Talbot School of Theology, Biola University. Today, we're bringing you a bonus episode based on an interview that I had recently with William Lane Craig. You'll recognize his name. He's one of the leading philosophers and apologists in the world today and is on faculty here at Talbot uh, and as a whole at Biola. Our interview is on his latest book in which he offers an explanation and a defense of the atonement of Jesus Christ. When I read this book and interviewed him, I was just fascinated at how important this doctrine is. It's often been missed in wider circles in the church and how we can defend it against certain criticisms that come up in the church. Now, of course, this is a little longer than our typical uh, interview will be here. It's about an hour long. And as I mentioned, was first on the YouTube channel. channel that's in partnership with Biola Apologetics. But given that it's Dr. William Lane Craig, and I think you'll find that it falls right in line with the content that we have here in this podcast, and you will enjoy it immensely. So enjoy it. And uh, when you're done, we hope you'll consider sharing it with a friend. Here's Dr. William Lane Craig on The Atonement. We are so glad you are joining us today for a conversation on the newest book by my friend, by colleague, by leading apologist, Dr. William Lane Craig called Atonement and the death of Christ. Now, Bill, I didn't tell you this ahead of time, but I was telling my dad earlier this week, I said, hey, I've got William Lane Craig coming in and somebody who had no context said, well, who's that? And I said, well, he's one of the top <laughs> apologists today. My son cut me off. He goes, son, he is the top apologist oh. today. So just want to <laughs> make sure great. you knew that that both McDowell's are a big fan, grateful for your work. And your new book is really, really fascinating. And I'm thrilled. I'm going to hold it up here so folks can see it. It releases officially officially today, Atonement and the Death of Christ. Now, you, to our audience, probably don't need an introduction, but have two PhDs. You teach at Biola University, Talbot School of Theology, have written so many books on theology, on philosophy, uh, on apologetics, and I just con- consider you a friend and a mentor. And uh, for those of you, before we jump into the book, if you're new to the channel, make sure you hit the subscribe button because we have some other interviews coming up you will not want to miss that I'll tell you more about at at the end. Uh, But Bill, let's jump in uh, to your book. And let me just start by asking, of all the things you've written on philosophically and theologically and apologetically, why take a couple years to focus on the issue of the atonement? Well, I have a long-range goal, Sean, of writing a systematic philosophical theology. And I realized that to tackle a project like that, I would have to bone up on areas of systematic theology where I felt weak. And one of those areas was the doctrine of the atonement. For years, I have been deeply dissatisfied with the treatment of the doctrine of the atonement by Christian philosophers. Uh, No one has stepped up to the plate to give robust defense of the Reformation doctrine of substitutionary atonement. And so I realized you're going to have to do it yourself. You've got to tackle it yourself. And this book is the product of that exploration. It is an exercise in uh, one aspect of systematic theology that impl- Im- employs philosophical concepts in the defense of a Reformation doctrine of the atonement. Well, for our viewers, you, I'm going to hold it up again, but you approach the issue historically, you approach it biblically, and you approach it philosophically. We're going to take a look at each of those kind of in turn. So if you have questions, 
um, wait towards kind of the end, and we will we will give uh, Dr. K a chance to answer those questions. But in the meantime, tell us where you are from. We would love to hear where you're from, and you're joining us uh, on this live stream. So let, let's start off with kind of an obvious question. You wrote a book on the atonement. What is the atonement? Can you give us a definition of it? Well, this was one of the most surprising insights that came to me in writing the book, and that is that the word atonement has two very different meanings. And most Christian philosophers dealing with the atonement are dealing with one meaning and ignore the other meaning. Mm -hmm. The etymological meaning of the term atonement comes from the Middle English phrase at one meant, at one meant, meaning a state of harmony or unity. Uh, it's closest to the New Testament idea of reconciliation with God. And this is the concept of the atonement that most Christian philosophers discuss. Mm -hmm. But, Sean, what I found is it's not the biblical meaning of the word atonement. The Hebrew root word for the English word atonement or to atone is kipper. Most of us are familiar with this in the Jewish festival Yom Kippur, uh, mm -hmm. the Day of Atonement. And atonement in the Hebrew biblical sense means to cleanse or to purify. And its object is impurity and sin. And so the sacrifices in the Old Testament had as one of their purposes the cleansing or purification of the worshiper and the tabernacle and impurity. And this is a completely different meaning than the idea of reconciliation. Indeed, the biblical notion is that reconciliation is achieved through atonement. So mm. the atonement in the etymological sense is achieved by atonement in the biblical sense. And cannot adequately discuss atonement in the etymological sense while ignoring the biblical meaning of the word atonement. That's really interesting to make the distinction between the word broadly speaking and specifically how it's used in scripture. So let, let's go there. But first, you describe the atonement. And by the way, we have folks from Haiti. We have folks from England, oh, wow. folks from Texas and all over the world. This is this is wonderful to have this. What we're doing is we're walking through Dr. Craig's book, and at the end, we're going to take some questions uh, that you may have for him. You describe the atonement as a multifaceted jewel. Why that analogy? The reason for the analogy is that the New Testament features a wide range of motifs and metaphors in connection with the doctrine of the atonement. And so the atonement is like a multifaceted jewel. There is no single doctrine of the atonement. There are all kinds of different facets, and these would include motifs like sacrifice, uh, satisfaction of divine justice, uh, ransom, uh, triumph over sin, death, and hell, the moral influence of Christ's death. All of these go together to build a multifaceted doctrine of the atonement. And to leave out any of those facets is to have a theory of the atonement that is biblically inadequate. So let's make a distinction between ones that are helpful, that kind of draw out what we mean by the atonement, and those that are, say, essential to being a biblical 
are they all essential or because uh, I think in the book you talk about like redemption, uh, penal substitution, which are essential that can't be left mm -hmm. out to really capture the atonement? In a well-cut jewel, you will find a central facet of the gem that anchors all the other facets and is reflected in them. And gemologists call that central facet the table of the, ge of the gem, of the jewel. And I think that the table of the jewel of the atonement is the notion of sacrifice. Christ's okay. death is a sacrificial offering to God whereby he takes upon himself the suffering that we deserved as the punishment for our sins. So another way of putting it would be to say that the table of the doctrine of the atonement is penal substitution, Christ's okay. vicarious suffering uh, on our behalf, whereby the demands of God's justice are met, and we are then afforded a divine pardon. That's a really helpful way to look at it. And that brings us to the Old Testament, where you see this idea of sacrifice so built into atonement. So can you talk about how the sacrificial system itself in the Old Testament lays a groundwork for atonement, but also for substitution? And by the way, we've got folks from Tennessee, from Ghana, Sweden. We've okay. got a, a range of folks listening in here. So Old Testament sacrifice and um, substitutionary atonement. Well, up to this time, Sean, the book of Leviticus in the Old Testament was, for me, the most boring book in the Old <laughs> Testament. It's just all about blood and guts and these animals and what do you do with the animal parts? Do you sacrifice them? And it just seems so irrelevant. But what I, the book has now just come alive to me because the background of Jesus' death as a sacrificial offering to God is found in these Levitical animal sacrifices that were offered for sin and impurity for centuries in the tabernacle and then later in the temple. And these sacrifices served a twin purpose. They cleansed the worshiper or the offerer of the sacrifice from sin, and they allayed God's wrath against that person uh, by satisfying uh, God's justice. So this is called expiation and propitiation. It expiates or cleanses the offerer of sin, and it propitiates God. That is to say, allays God's wrath, satisfies him. And a key element in these sacrifices, as you just mentioned, is the idea of substitution. Every one of the different animal sacrifices, no matter which one you pick, they all involved as a central element that the offerer would press his hand upon the head of the sacrificial animal before he would slit its throat and kill it. The offerer had to kill the animal himself. Wow. The, the priest didn't do it for him. And this hand-laying ceremony was an emphatic way of saying that this animal is dying in my place. He is bearing the consequences of sin that I deserve as a result of my sin. He is dying in my place. 
And so in the most graphic and, I mean, gruesome way, these sacrifices really brought home to these Old Testament Jews the consequences of sin, its seriousness, and what it cost to win their pardon. What about the objection that I've heard, and you talk about this in the book, that there's one thing to have sacrifice, but there's no precedent in the Old Testament for substitution or human sacrifice covering a kind of sin. You give a great example from Exodus. Uh, take that yes, away. Yes, that's so fascinating, where the people in the wilderness sin by constructing a golden cap and worshiping it. And Moses is beside himself at their apostasy, and he says, I- I'm going to go up to God on the mountain, and I will try to make atonement for you. And so he goes to God, and he says, God, snuff out my life instead of theirs. Take me. Don't destroy the people. And God declines to do so. He doesn't say this is impossible, but he says, no. He said, uh, I will not take your life instead of theirs. He says, when the time comes for punishment, I will require it at their hand. Mm. So this is a precedent, at least, for the idea of one person offering his life as a substitute for many. And where this comes to... Oh, keep going. Sorry, cut out for a second. This comes to special and explicit expression is in the servant of the Lord in Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 53, the righteous servant of the Lord suffers unjustly for the sins of the people. He bears their sins and thereby constitutes them righteous before God. And New Testament authors pick up on this motif of the righteous suffering servant of Isaiah 53, and they apply that chapter to Jesus and say that Jesus on the cross bore our sins uh, in his body on the tree. Let's unpack Isaiah 53 in a minute, but first a question that kind of popped up that asks, how do you explain to a non-believer who looks at this and says, throughout the history of the world, there's human sacrifice, and it's this antiquated pagan system that just Mm. doesn't resonate with modern sensibilities. And I realize there's so much to unpack there, But how would you approach that, say, with a non-believer? Well, as you just indicated, Sean, God reads unequivocally human sacrifice uh, as an atonement for sin. Rather, he mandates animals be sacrificed instead. Now, they understood that this was provisional, that uh, an animal's blood doesn't really literally wash away sin. This was God's gracious provision uh, to the people, that if they'll do this, um, that then they will find divine forgiveness and pardon. But these were foreshadowings mm-hmm. of the ultimate sacrifice that would be made by the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, when he would once and for all decisively put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as the second person of the Trinity, a divine person, Christ's sacrifice has infinite merit mm. and infinite power to remove sin, completely unlike these crude and provisional mm. animal sacrifices. 
Well, this is great. We're going to shift to the New Testament. But first, how, how is Isaiah 53 so important to understanding atonement in the Old Testament? And then how the New Testament refers back to this passage so frequently as well. Why is Isaiah 53 so important? I think it is the most crucial passage for the doctrine of penal substitution. In the Old Testament Levitical sacrifices, you have the idea of substitutionary death, but the animal isn't really punished Hmm. in the person's place. He bears the consequence of sin that would have been the punishment of the offerer if it had been inflicted on him. But we shouldn't think that the Old Testament teaches that animals are punished for the sins of people. But in Isaiah 53, you have explicitly this notion of substitutionary punishment for the sins of the people Mm. by a completely righteous person, a blameless person, the righteous servant of the Lord. And Mm. so this passage is critical, uh, and especially in its New Testament, employment and application to Jesus. Well, let's shift specifically to that then, how the New Testament applies that passage, which carries with it a certain view of atonement. Where do we see the scripture in the New Testament referring back to this passage? Well, you have it, for example, in Jesus' celebration of the Last Supper with his disciples. The Gospels have a disproportionate amount of space devoted to the death of Christ. Like 25% of the Gospels is about the last week of his life. And in his Last Supper, Jesus himself gives for us the interpretation of his forthcoming crucifixion and death. And choosing the Passover as the time for his death was no accident. Sean, because Jesus saw his death as the ultimate sacrifice, Passover sacrifice, uh, which you remember in the Old Testament, allayed God's wrath and spared the people from the wrath of God that smote the Egyptians because the blood of the Lamb covered their homes. And Jesus is saying, I am the final Mm. Passover sacrifice. Moreover, he quotes Isaiah 53. He, he says upon his arrest garden that the scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was reckoned with the transgressors, a quotation of Isaiah 53, 12. So Jesus saw himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and as the ultimate Passover sacrifice and the inauguration of the new covenant predicted by Jeremiah uh, when he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So these words of the Last Supper are just rich in Old Testament imagery from the Passover, from the Levitical sacrifices, from Isaiah 53, all coming together at that moment in history. What what does Paul add to this? You spend a lot of time in your book. And by the way, I'm going to hold up for our viewers who have just joined us the latest book by Dr. William Lane Craig called Atonement and the Death of Christ, which is an exegetical, historical, and philosophical exploration of this doctrine. You also taught, you spent a lot of time in the Romans 3 passage and what Paul illustrates. Yeah, Romans 3, 21 to 26 is the central passage of the book of Romans. During the first three chapters, Paul has described the desperate situation of mankind, condemned before God, hopeless 
lost and incapable of saving themselves and under the wrath of God. And in chapter three, Paul lays out his solution, and it is the death of Christ on the cross, the blood of Christ, which is, uh, in Paul's words, a hilasterion for our sins. And that Greek word is a multivalent metaphor indicating the place of atonement and the means of propitiation, uh, whereby God's wrath is satisfied and our sins are expiated and we are made right with God. So Paul's book, Romans, climaxes in this passage on the atonement. Now, I love that you go back originally to the scriptures itself and are laying out a biblical doctrine of the atonement and defending it. And we're going to get to the philosophical defense and some of the big objections that come up, like people say there's no precedent in law for substitution. We're going to get there, but the middle part of the book is where you kind of just give a quick summary, like historically speaking, of the way atonement has been dealt with by the church fathers. Kind of a 30,000-foot view. How did some of the patristic fathers, and I ask because I've often heard that substitution is not there, and it only shows up a long time later, but even in my work on the apostles, I remember reading some of the fathers and pausing going, wait a minute, that's substitutionary atonement. (laughs) So I'll tell you, Josh, our, I mean, Sean. That's uh, okay. <laughs> yeah. One of the things that surprised me in doing this book was how bad the secondary literature is on the doctrine of the atonement. I do not trust it anymore after reading wow. the primary sources. Wow. These authors like Oregon and Augustine and Anselm and Abelard and Grotius are caricatured by modern authors and thereby they become easy straw men mm. to knock down their theories of the atonement. But when you read these great thinkers, uh, they were much more sophisticated than what these modern caricatures them would lead you to believe. Mm. And one example of this is that I had always been taught in seminary and elsewhere that the church fathers held uniformly to a ransom theory of the atonement. That is to say that Christ's death was a ransom that Jesus paid to Satan so that he would let us, his captives, go. Uh, Satan was sort of like a hostage taker, and uh, Christ's death was a payment to the hostage taker to let the hostage go. Now, that that motif is found in the church fathers, to be sure, though some of them rejected it vehemently. Some held to it. But you also find the motifs of sacrifice, penal substitution, uh, redemption, and so forth. There are wonderful statements in the book that I quote from Eusebius and Oregon and others that show they held to the doctrine of penal substitution, along with the so-called Christus Victor model, according to which Christ triumphed over Satan, death, and hell. They held just as multifaceted a view of the atonement as the New Testament represents. That really surprised me when I read this part of your book, because I had read the secondary literature, but not the primary literature in the same way. Um, so what about, what, what did the medieval fathers and thinkers contribute to this conversation? People like Anselm, his work mm-hmm. is considered pivotal oh. in this discussion. 
Yes, Anselm has a theory of the atonement called a satisfaction theory. And it sounds like penal substitution, but it's not. Anselm believed that there were two ways in which justice could be met when you've committed crime. Mm-hmm. One would be punishment. You punish the criminal for the crime and thereby the demands of justice are met. But he thought the other way is the criminal could offer some kind of compensation, say a monetary payment, and this would be a compensation for his wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. And so what Anselm said was, if, if God punished us for our sins, the whole human race would be lost. So there must instead be some sort of compensation for sin that is offered, and that's what Christ does. As a perfectly righteous person, he didn't have to die because he did not committed sin, but he offered his life as a compensation to God for our sins, and God accepts this compensatory payment Hmm. on our behalf, and that is Anselm's satisfaction theory. Now, the reformers, the Protestant reformers differ in that they saw Christ's death not as a compensation to God, at least not primarily so, but rather as substitutionary punishment. Yes, if we were punished for our sins, certainly we'd all go to hell. But what God has done has punished Christ in our place to meet the demands of his own justice. Hmm. We're going to move to the philosophical in a second, but there's a question here from uh, Dean Meadows, one of our beloved apologetics graduates. And he writes this. He says, given grade Boyd's work on atonement is a Hmm. Christian's option regarding models of atonement only between crisis victor or penal substitutionary atonement or is there room for compatibility? As I said, the atonement is a multifaceted jewel, and Christus Victor will be a, an important part of a full-orbed theory of the atonement. So in my doctrine of the atonement that I lay out and defend, while the table of the jewel is penal substitution, certainly Christus Victor is an important facet of a complete doctrine, yes. That's great. Very Don't helpful. play these off against each other. Mm, good. I think you do that really well, laying out, say, Christus Victor and some of the different theories together and what they add, although any one in itself is not sufficient to capture all of the cuts in the jewel, so to speak. What about, what's the view of uh, atonement in Narnia, in the C.S. Lewis? There seems to be some substitution, but a little bit of a yes. ransom theory worked in there as well. What would be the one that C.S. Lewis was working off? I I cannot answer that with confidence. I've read the Narnia Chronicles, and I know, isn't it Edmund that, or it's the, um, Aslan dies in the place of Edmund on the table and is slain by the wicked witch. But, so you definitely have the idea there of substitution, but whether it's, just vicarious sacrifice, or does it go beyond that to actual penal substitution? There, I'm not a Lewis scholar, and so I shouldn't answer. That's fair. So let's define carefully what we mean by penal substitutionary atonement then. Yes, this is key because certain theologians, prominent evangelicals like John Stott, said that we must never say that God punished 
his beloved son. Mm. Uh, so Stott doesn't affirm that Christ was punished in our place. Nevertheless, Stott believes that Christ did die in our place. So to accommodate people like Stott, I think we should define penal substitution as the doctrine that Jesus Christ bore the suffering which would have been our punishment had it been inflicted upon us, thereby releasing us from our just desert and affording us a divine pardon. So on, on this view, it leaves it open, whether you want to say that Christ was punished for our sins. Um, you, can, you can say, no, he wasn't punished for our sins, but he bore the suffering that would have been our punishment had it been inflicted on us. Or you can say, yes, Christ was punished for our sins. I'm inclined to say he was, in fact, punished for our sins. I see no conceptual problem with that, and I think it meets the data of Isaiah 53 most adequately. So that would be my affirmation. But I don't want to exclude people like John Stott from being penal substitution theorists. So I offer that broader definition. So the issue of whether Jesus was actually punished for us or punished as if he were in our place, both of those fit within the penal substitutionary atonement view. Did, did I get that correct? I want to make sure. Why would some people differ over that? Why does that distinction uh, well, so Well, you important? didn't get it correct, and that okay. may be why <laughs> it didn't seem to be distinct to you. The one view is that Christ was punished in our place. Mm -hmm. Okay? That's mm -hmm. the traditional view. The other view is that Christ suffered the he 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 bore the suffering that would have been our punishment okay. had it been inflicted on us it's like the animal sacrifices in leviticus the animal wasn't punished for our sin but the animal bore the suffering that would have been the worshipers punishment had it been inflicted on him okay um why is that distinction so important to make between your view and, say, Stott's view? Just to be inclusive, to, to let okay. a great evangelical theologian like John Stott count as he wants to as a penal substitution okay. theorist. I don't think it's a serious concession. It's just defining the doctrine broadly enough that you don't have to say that Christ was punished in our place. Okay, gotcha. That makes sense. Here's a question from John Gardner. He says, can you describe the difference between atonement and the death of Christ and your earlier book on the atonement that came out with Cambridge? Like maybe elements that it lacked that you expanded upon here. The Cambridge book is an excerpt of the bigger book. Uh, the Cambridge book basically includes the philosophical material, but very little of the biblical and uh, historical material. So it's a sort of Reader's Digest version of the larger book. One of the objections that Eleanor Stump has that you respond to in the book is that since uh, penal substitutionary atonement affirms uh, that God is loving, it's therefore incoherent and unsalvageable. What would be yes. your response to, response to that? Well, it seems very odd to say that God's giving up his own life in a self-sacrifice to redeem us is not a loving act. 
So one wonders, why does Eleanor think that this is not consistent with God's love? Well, the reason is because on penal substitutionary theories, God's justice doesn't fail to exact any punishment deserved. Justice is fully served. Um, the demands of justice are met. And therefore, she thinks that God doesn't really show any mercy. He, he exacts the full demands of God justice. But it seems to me so obvious, Sean, that mercy is a person relative notion. You show mercy to a person X. And in the case substitutionary atonement. Yes, the demands of God's justice are fully met by Christ. That's one of the glories of penal substitution, mm. that both the justice and the love of God are expressed. But it does express God's mercy toward us in that he doesn't demand the exaction of divine justice at our hand. So he is merciful because he is merciful toward us. And that's an expression of his self-giving love. It sounds like in the book, you go out of your way to say God is both just and loving and atonement. We see the two of them come together and people err when they don't understand that it's just or understand that it's loving. Is that a fair way to look at it? Yes, it is. I think that both the justice and the love of God are essential attributes of God and therefore cannot be compromised. I don't think that it makes sense to say that God is so loving that he chooses not to exact the demands of divine justice. He sort of blinks at sin and, and, and lets it go. Um, and I think that while that would be an expression of love and mercy, it would compromise his justice. And I understand God's holiness to um, comprise both his justice and his love. Uh, and therefore, neither of these should be sacrificed. Well, you you do that well, and it comes through. Let let me throw some one question to help frame this maybe for us is how you talk about divine command theory of ethics and how that informs the way we think about the atonement. Maybe define define that for some people who aren't familiar with it, and show how that relates to how we make sense of and defend the atonement. Divine command theory is one theory of ethics that a good number of contemporary Christian philosophers have defended, uh, most notably Robert Adams. And according to this theory, the good is not some sort of platonic abstraction, uh, rather good is a concrete reality, namely God himself. God is the good, and he is by nature loving, kind, uh, fair, compassionate, uh, and, and so forth. And God's moral nature is expressed toward us in the form of divine commands that constitute our moral duties. A moral obligation arises from an imperative issued by a competent authority, and as the good God is the competent authority to issue to us moral commands that thereby constitute our moral obligations. So this is relevant to the doctrine of the atonement, in that many detractors of the theory of the atonement say it's unjust to publish and punish an innocent person in the place of the guilty. Um, this 
would be manifestly unjust to to punish an, a blameless person for sins that someone else has committed, and therefore God cannot practice penal substitution. Well, when I read this, the first thing I thought was, well, wait a minute, who determines what is just and unjust? Those are categories of moral obligation, and these are determined by God. So if God determines that it is just to punish Christ in our place, who are we to talk back to God and say, this is unjust? So if you have a divine command theory of ethics in place, if it's even possible, as surely it is, well, this objection to penal substitution can't even get off the ground because um, it's God who determines what is just and unjust. That, that's really helpful to make a distinction between God's character being just and where his obligations lie and where our obligations lie, especially as it comes to this issue of atonement. Sometimes we take our obligations and assume they apply equally to God, but it's not necessarily on the same level. Right. Um, and in fact, Sean, I would say that God doesn't have any moral obligations hmm. because he doesn't issue commands hmm. to himself. Hmm. And therefore, he acts in accordance with his perfectly good and essential character, but he doesn't have moral duties hmm. to fulfill. And therefore, it just makes no sense to say that God acts unjustly unless you want to make retributive justice an essential attribute of God. And then that pushes the debate to yet another level. Uh, typically, Detractors of penal substitution are very reluctant to do that. They do not like retributive justice and don't like that to be an attribute of God's character. But I think they've got to say that if they're going to push their objection that penal substitution is unjust. Well, then let, let's talk about this, because my next question was going to be the distinction between retributive justice and mm. consequentialist uh, theories of justice. Maybe distinguish yes. between the two of those and why whether or not God is bound to retributive justice plays into this question. Again, in studying the question of the atonement and the question of the justice of penal substitution, one encounters the fact that there are two different, very broad theories of what justice is. One is called retributive justice. And the central idea of retributive justice is that punishment is good because the guilty deserve it. Punishment is good because the guilty deserve it. The other theory of justice is consequentialism, which says that punishment is administered because of the goods that it can bring about, the extrinsic goods. It's not intrinsically good, but it, it can bring about extrinsic goods, like uh, the isolation of dangerous criminals that would be harmful to society, or the reformation of the criminal uh, through um, reformative processes in prison, uh, or deterrence of crime by showing other would-be criminals what it's going to cost them. And so consequentialism says that punishment is uh, merited by or can be give, administered by the state. It is just because of these extrinsic benefits that can be achieved. Now, where this is interesting is if you adopt 
a consequentialist theory of justice, then it's easy to justify penal substitution because doing so saves the entire human race from damnation. And no greater good for the humanity could be envisioned by that. So on a consequentialist theory, it's very easy to justify God's punishing an innocent person for our sins. Now, in fact, I don't think consequentialism is the right theory of justice. I think retributive justice is correct. But as I say, this is very important because up until recently, consequentialism was the dominant theory in American justice. Uh, It was thought that the reason you punish people is to reform them and provide deterrence. And under the influence of psychologists and sociologists, this came to dominate the American penal system. And this has had disastrous consequences, Sean. For example, one of them is that women have been given more severe penalties for the same crimes than men. Why? Well, because women were thought to be more reformable than men. Interesting. And therefore, punishments were more suitably measured out to women because it would help them reform wow. these incorrigible men. So that's just one of the disastrous consequences of consequentialism, which is now thankfully on the wane, and there has been a revival of uh, retributive theories of justice, which I think is in line with the biblical view of justice. Well, it's really interesting that you say that the movement is against consequentialist theories, but even if it were, it wouldn't rule out penal substitutionary atonement and sacrifice. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah, that's what I try to do is I look Mm. at various alternatives in the book rather than just taking one party line. So one thing I would say would be, suppose you have the divine command theory of justice. This could solve the problem unless... Mm you make justice essential to the divine nature. But then, what kind of justice? If it's consequentialism, there's no problem. It's got to be retributive justice. But then if you do that, then I move on to the next uh, response. And so it's it's a kind of dialectic in this book, various ways of responding to the critics. Well, it's very, very systematic is what you do. So if anybody watching wants to think through all the implications and the questions legally, philosophically, biblically that come up with the atonement, you entertain all these different roads, but then keep bringing the reader back to what is the biblical view of atonement. So to me, it was encouraging. It's like, wow, you can really defend this on so many different levels. Yes, yes. Uh, that that was one of my big takeaways from from reading the book. So. Good. Let's talk about let's talk about retributive justice. That if this is a good thing, that moves the ball forward. How then do we defend the biblical view of atonement? Then we need to distinguish between positive retributive justice and negative retributive justice. A common distinction among uh, law theorists: positive retributive justice lies at the heart of a retributive theory of justice. It states that punishment is good because the guilty deserve it. That's positive retributive justice. Negative retributive 
justice says that the innocent should not be punished because they mm-hmm. don't deserve it. Now, suppose then that God is an unqualified positive retributivist. Uh, that means that he will punish the guilty. But suppose he's only a qualified negative retributivist. Okay. Suppose that God says, I won't punish any human being for someone else's sins. That's why he refused Moses' offer to die in the place of the people. God says, no, no, I'm not going to exact justice from innocent human persons. But what if he reserves for himself the right of satisfying the demands of his own justice by punishing an innocent divine person, Mm -hmm. namely the second person of the Trinity who volunteered to become a human being and take upon himself the sins of the world. That wouldn't be unjust in that case. And so what the opponent of penal substitution would have to do is he would have to give us some sort of argument for why God is an unqualified negative retributivist. (laughs) I can't think of any reason for that. Very interesting. I... That makes a lot of sense. One of my favorite parts of your book, and I was surprised at the ending that you said nobody's asked you about this yet, is the idea of a legal fiction. Uh, I- explain what that is okay. and how that helps us with the atonement. Because I thought I, I literally went and read this to my family. I'm like, listen to this. This is so interesting. So it take, take it away. <laughs> Let's move the ball forward again. Suppose that the critic says, well, no, negative retributive justice is essential to God. He is an unqualified negative as well as positive retributivist. Then how do you defend penal substitution? Mm. Well, here we come to the Reformation doctrine of the imputation of sins. According to the reformers, Jesus Christ dying on the cross was not an innocent person. Rather, my sins and your sins had been imputed to Christ so that he was now declared legally guilty before God and therefore could justly be punished for our sins. Now, it's important to understand that legal imputation does not mean that Christ became an evil person, that he suddenly turned into a selfish, grasping, cruel, lustful person. Not at all. He was just as morally virtuous as ever, but he was declared legally guilty before God and therefore could be justly punished for our sins. Now, the obvious response to that is, well, we have no comprehension, no understanding of the imputation of the sins of someone to an innocent third party. That is completely outside our experience. We have no knowledge in our legal system of the imputation of criminal wrongdoing to a blameless third party. And as a result of my conversation, Professor DeShaymaker at the Edinburgh School of Law uh, in Scotland, I was guided into the legal literature Mm. that shows that that is patently false in The Anglo-American criminal justice system, as well as in civil law, the imputation of wrongdoing to blameless third parties is a commonly accepted Mm. and uh, prevalent 
uh, phenomenon in our justice system. One way in which this can be done was the way you mentioned. It's through the device of legal fictions. The court, for the purposes of a specific action, can adopt a legal fiction with regard to that action. Hmm. A legal fiction is something that the court consciously knows to be false, but for the purposes of administration of justice, it adopts that Hmm. fiction for the purposes of this specific action. And one of the most classic examples is the case of um, Mr. Fabregas uh, versus Mosterin. In the um, Mediterranean island of, what was it called, uh, Madragas or something, I think? I forget the name of the island now. The island was under British colonial control. And Mr. Madrigas wanted to bring uh, an action against the governor of the island because of false arrest imprisonment. But the problem is to get this suit promulgated in that island nation, the governor himself would have to approve it, and he would Mm -hmm. never do it. And so what Mr. Madrigas did was he filed suit in the Court of Common Pleas back in London. Well, for the purposes of the action, um, the uh, Lord Justice declared, because justice would not be served otherwise, for the purposes of this action, this British island, oh, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention, this Court of Common Pleas in London only had jurisdiction over court cases in London, over crimes that had been committed in the city of London. So for the purposes of the action, the Lord Justice declared that for the purposes of this action, this British island, the members, the residents of it were residents of London, that they lived in London, and therefore he could pile the suit there. And commentators on this said, this is plainly false. This is an obvious fiction. And yet it also served the purposes of justice, whereby... Um, justice could be done. So a court or God could adopt the legal fiction that some other person is guilty of the wrongdoing, even though he isn't. And this actually happens in the United States maritime law. This was uh, provoked by the fact that there were ships that were violating embargo laws by carrying uh, contraband and even slaves. And when they would arrest these ships, the ship owner or the ship uh, captains and crews would produce these innocent looking manifests of the cargo saying they had no idea that there were slaves and contraband on board. It was the ship owners. It was their fault. for, for this illegal activity. So what's the court going to do? What the court did was it adopted the legal fiction that ship herself is the guilty party that could be prosecuted for this wrongdoing. And so the personification of ships became in the 19th century the standard view in maritime law, and it served to develop a more just and equitable maritime jurisprudence whereby the ship itself 
is declared to be the offending party. So through the legal fiction of ship personification, we see a clear example of how crimes committed by one person could be um, Mm. imputed to a blameless third party. That's really interesting. And by the way, the term legal fiction, you go out of your way to say this isn't something that's just purely like this has real implications for the real world. It's within the legal world. So justice can be met in the real world, so to speak. So, right. The idea that Christ was punished for our sins, that he satisfied the demands of divine justice, all of those are real. The only thing that is fictional is that Christ actually did the sins for which he was punished. Hmm. Let me ask you one more question. That has real consequences in the real world. Perfect. One more question, and I see a great question here from Samuel. Um, You said that there's examples in Anglo-American system of justice analogous to substitution. What's just one or two examples of how we actually see substitution built within the Anglo-American system of justice? Well, what I say is that the doctrine of the imputation of sins to a blameless third party is a common feature of the Anglo-American justice system, wholly apart from legal fictions. You don't even need a legal fiction. Hmm. There's something in civil law and also in criminal law called vicarious liability. Um, It's based upon the principle that the master is answerable. Uh, Hmm. A master is legally liable for wrongs done by his servant in the discharge of his duties. And in modern law, this has come to be applied uh, to the relation employers and employees. The employer, who is innocent and blameless, can be held vicariously liable for the wrongs that are committed by his employee in the discharge of his duties. Uh, So, for example, in one case, the owner of a cafe was held criminally liable because the manager of the cafe to whom duties had been delegated allowed prostitutes Mm -hmm. to congregate in the cafe in violation of the law. And so this crime of the manager was imputed vicariously to the owner of the cafe who had no idea that this was going on. And this is a very, very common feature in law, the idea of the vicarious liability employers for employees. And similarly, Christ can be held by God to be vicariously liable for our wrongdoing. This is great. There's so much more in your book that I hope people will pick up and explore this. And I'm guessing if some people were uh, were new to this, some of the ideas they need to slow down watch this again, read the book, but it's very understandable for somebody willing to take the time to really think about this. Uh, Here's a question from Samuel. He says, uh, what do you think about the theological discussion about the optionality of the cross, another death would have been valid, and the importance of the resurrection in justification? Oh, wow, there's three questions rolled into (laughs) one there. I don't think any other death would have been valid because Mm. to die for the sins of all humanity you would need to have a sinless person whose death was of immeasurable good. And so that requires a divine person, right? 
a mm-hmm. member of the Trinity. Now, one thing that did surprise me, though, Sean, is that among the church fathers, it was widely thought that the death of Christ for our sins was optional, that God could have simply chosen to forgive our sins, remit them, without requiring Christ's substitutionary death. Um, and that really did surprise me. And that was held also by Thomas Aquinas yeah. and Hugo Grotius as well. So this is a respected position within the history of Christian doctrine. Um, I think that one of the reasons that the church fathers opted for this was because of the prevalence of the Christus Victor motif among the church fathers. You see, in order to conquer Satan and to snatch away the people he had taken hostage, Christ didn't have to come and die in our place to do that. An omnipotent God could defeat Satan with a flick of his finger and free the hostages. And so if you think of your atonement theory as primarily this Christus Victor model uh, of just freeing us from Satan, death, and hell, then the optionality of the atonement becomes more evident. But if you think of the satisfaction of divine justice Mm. being essential, as Anselm and the Reformers did, and that this is an essential attribute of God, then I think it's very plausible to say that it was not optional, that the demands of divine justice had to be satisfied in order for us to be pardoned and redeemed. Hmm. That, that, that's very helpful. Uh, hope, hopefully that uh, answers your question, Samuel, did to me. Let, let me just ask you a personal question from this. Um, you spent two years studying the atonement. What, let me take a step back. When I studied the apostles, I spent a lot of time studying martyrdom, and it really hit me how central a doctrine it is that Christians will suffer tied mm. to our faith. And I hadn't really looked at it through that lens before. So it, it affected me personally in a lot of ways, um, especially mm. in light of just certain things going on in our world today. Studying the atonement, did it personally affect you? Were there any just kind of spiritual insights or encouragements you took away from this study? Yeah, I would like to say that, Sean, Hmm. but I think for me, it was mainly intellectual. Hmm. I had struggled for years with these objections to the atonement without any satisfactory answer Hmm. to them. I kept waiting for one of these Christian philosophers like Richard Swinburne or Eleanor Stump to step Hmm. up to the plate and give us a robust defense of a Reformation doctrine of the atonement, and nobody would do so. So for me, what this study has meant personally is just tremendous intellectual freedom Mm. and satisfaction. I just love the doctrine now. (laughs) I just rejoice in it. And and the insights that it, it, it gave me about the nature of divine forgiveness as being a legal pardon and what that means for complete freedom from guilt and being a new person in Christ uh, has just, it's just deepened my understanding of these mm. wonderful doctrines that lie at the heart of the Christian faith. Well, I loved reading it. I read it once when they sent me an early copy, second time for this. And I think I'm going to go back a third time because it's so rich 
And anyone who knows you and your work philosophically and theologically, when they read your book, uh, will not be surprised at all. Just the depth and the and the quality and care you take systematically in approaching this. So again, the book is Atonement and the Death of Christ. Comes out today. I would encourage any of you who are tracked with this. One thing I do is when I get books that are really important and helpful, I will go back through them two or three times, underline, circle, explain them to people so I can learn it myself. And I think this book, given that it's the heart of forgiveness, God's character, the person of Christ and atonement, it is worth taking that time uh, to work through it. So thanks for your work on this, Dr. Craig. Really, really appreciate it. It's a a privilege for me to teach with you at Biola. Uh, Those who are listening right here, uh, if you ever thought about getting a master's degree, uh, Dr. Craig teaches in our MA Phil program which is clearly one of the top in the world in philosophy or religion. I did that program and Dr. Craig, my wife, I've known her since high school. And she said during that program is when she saw certain things in my life and my clarity and confidence change more than wow. any other season. So that, that's a conversation I'd love to tell you about sometime. But anybody listening here who's thought about studying this uh, anywhere, take a look at Talbot's uh, philosophy religion program. I teach in the apologetics program and build us some classes for us there as well. If you've ever thought about getting a master's degree, we are going distance education. We would love to have you. And we have classes on the resurrection. We have classes on theology, a problem of evil. I'm teaching one on sexuality coming up, a range of topics. And we would love to equip you just to be a more effective, loving, and gracious apologist. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, you're not quite ready yet for a master's degree. We do have a certificate program. And if you look down below in the description, there's a discount just for uh, tuning in and listening in. And we will have send you lectures and kind of just basic assignments just to walk you through more formally how to learn apologetics. And we have pastors and teachers and parents and moms and dads go through this program. And the response is overwhelmingly really, really positive. Uh, if you enjoyed this, also make sure you hit the subscribe button because we have some other interviews coming up, including part two with my father on the people that deeply influenced his life. And next week I'll have Preston Sprinkle on. We're gonna be looking at one of the most common, popular, what you might call revisionist arguments that the word homosexual was added into the Bible to kind of persecute against gay people and is an inaccurate translation. That's a very common argument today. Wednesday, we're gonna unpack that. So make sure you hit subscribe. Thank you again, Dr. William Lane Craig. Pick up his recent book, And if you enjoyed this, give us a thumbs up and uh, consider sharing this with somebody else. Have a wonderful evening.